Welcome to another episode of The Arts Law. Please subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends on social media, follow us on at The Art Salon on Instagram, and if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, there's an option to do so on Anchor or contact me directly. My guest today is Thomas Gansh. This has been so far one of my favorite conversations on The Art Salon. Thomas is an incredibly generous man, and I was humbled by his openness. This conversation was a joy to listen back to and edit. It helped me bring to words sentiments I have for years been espousing. We touch on many topics, but I want to briefly highlight one that is most important to me. In talking about the classical music industry, Thomas correctly diagnosed many of its most salient issues. The stagnation art music, like all high arts, has been experiencing since the late 70s is largely the product of an over-technification of the creative arts. We've relinquished the role of the artist to the technocrat, whose competence rarely opens the possibilities of human expression. We've designed curricula and value systems which don't encourage creative decision-making. In a community where everyone talks more about mistakes than achievements, the result is the breeding of self-deprecating performers and audiences with no emotional investment in the music they're hearing. At one point in our conversation, I lament the state of affairs as I believe technical perfection was never at the forefront of most composers' priorities when trying to express themselves. Thomas was quick to respond, yes. But the composer is the architect. The performer is nothing but a bricklayer. That simple expression really brought things home for me. If the industry continues to elevate the bricklayers to the post of architects, we will guarantee the absolute dissolution of beauty in favor of practical structuring. If I wish anything to come from this podcast, it is simply that a younger artist will abandon institutional mentality in favor of individual artistic exploration, where a myriad of voices will inform the paths forward. Even with COVID, all we talk about is how large institutions will fare with their gargantuan budget demands and their tired offerings, while small venues are left to fend for themselves. Recently, LA had to see the closure of the Blue Whale Jazz Club, and to this day I wonder if they were not more worthy of cultural relief efforts than the many nonprofit series in the city whose musical communities pale in comparison to the colossus we've been forced to bury in our city. The demise of the whale is a greater loss to the vibrant artists of Los Angeles than any other institution I can think of in the city. In this too, Thomas is prescient, and I hope it will give all the creative artists listening the courage to start going out to rebuild their audiences that they've fought so hard to build over the years and who miss them. We must rise above the utility of art and once again recognize this pillar of humanity as a sacrosanct expression and a spiritual path. To this end, I leave you with the immortal words of Schiller and his second aesthetic letter. But ought I not make a better use of the liberty which you have granted me than to engage your attention upon the theater of fine arts? Is it not at least unseasonable to look around after a statute book for the aesthetic world when the affairs of the mortal world excite an interest so much keener and the circumstances of the times call so pressingly upon the spirit of philosophical inquiry to engage in the most perfect of all works of art, the erection of a true political freedom. I would fain not live in or labor for another century. One is a good citizen of the age, only so far as he is a good citizen of the state, and when it is found unseemly, nay, admissible, to withdraw from the manners and customs of the circle in which we live, why should we esteem it a less duty to allow the need and the taste of the century a voice in our choice of activity? But this voice seems by no means to decide in favor of art. 
not at least of that special phase to which alone my investigation will be directed. The course of events has given the spirit of the age a direction, which threatens to remove it farther and farther from ideal art. This must abandon reality and rise with decent boldness above necessity, for art is the daughter of freedom and must receive her commission from the needs of the spirit, not from the exigencies of matter. But now necessity rules and oppresses fallen humanity beneath its tyrannical yoke. Utility is a great idol of the age, to which all powers stoop and all talents do homage. The spiritual merit of art has no weight in its clumsy balance, and robbed of every incitement flees from the century's noisy mart. The spirit of philosophical inquiry itself seizes one provenance of the imagination after another, and the limits of art diminish the more those of science are enlarged. The eyes of the philosopher and the man of the world are turned full of expression towards the political arena, where, as is believed, the great destiny of humanity is now developed. Does it not betray a censurable indifference to the welfare of society not to share this universal discourse? So nearly does this great action, on account of its tenor and results, approach everyone who calls himself a man, but must it especially interest the self-thinker on account of his profession? A question which otherwise only the blind right of the strongest will answer is apparently now pending before the tribunal of pure reason, and whoever is only capable of placing himself in the center of the whole and of substituting his individuality for the race may consider himself as a judge in the court of reason, while at the same time, as a man and citizen of the world, he is a party and perceives himself more or less intimately implicated in the result. Thus, it is not only his own cause which awaits decision in this great action. It must also be judged according to laws, which, as rational being, he himself is able and entitled to dictate. How attractive would it be for me to push my researches into such a subject, with such an ingenious thinker as well as liberal cosmopolite, and to surrender the decision to a heart, consecrated with a fine enthusiasm to the welfare of humanity? What an agreeable surprise to meet your unbiased spirit in the same result on the field of ideas, in spite of the great diversity of station, and the wide difference which circumstances in the actual world make necessary. If I resist this attractive experiment, and suffer beauty to precede freedom, I trust not only to accommodate it to my inclination, but to vindicate it by principle. I hope to convince you that this matter is far less foreign to the wants than to the taste of the age, nay more that in order to solve this political problem in experience, one must pass through the aesthetic, since it is beauty that leads to freedom. But this argument cannot be pursued until I remind you of the principles by which generally the reason guides itself in political legislation. And with that, I give you Thomas Gunch. Alright, so we're going now. In preparation for this, I saw a video that you posted during recently with your brother, uh, Hans, and I immediately was so curious because I, I want to hear, like, th there was something that you guys said that I struck me a lot, which was that you were on a clear path uh, through a very traditional, you know, career, and that as soon as you kind of allowed yourself to be yourself, it was almost immediate that a different career came for you that, that was happier for you, but also very prominent. So I don't know if you can talk a little bit about that transition. 
Uh, well, I grew up as uh, I, I grew up being the little brother of Hans Gansch. So that was my whole <laughs> my whole thing because everybody told me that I was going to be uh, I was going to have the same career as him. And I was even to surpass him, and I was even more talented. And and uh, everybody seemed to be convinced since I was a baby that I would become the next Vienna Philharmonic trumpet player. So, uh, and carrying this burden <laughs> on on my shoulders, I, I had to fail, of course, because uh, my brother happened to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest lead trumpet player in an orchestra that's the problem I, I still consider him when i listen to to uh, recordings i consider him to be together with maurice murphy and and bud herseth the, the 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 top three you know uh so even if everybody would uh, if everything would have worked out the way everybody thought it would i i wouldn't play better than him anyway i just maybe i would have done the same but there was I, I could only fail so everybody treated me as little brother of Gunch nobody saw me saw Thomas so when I I really failed spectacularly uh, in in some auditions uh, and so word came out that uh, I'm I bumped and I, I won't make it and I'm a fail a failure and a disappointment and that kind of Everybody, there was a moment everybody uh, uh, pointed at me and everybody told me that I was lazy and, and I couldn't make it and I, I did everything wrong. And this was a point where I learned to pull myself out of the mess. And then I decided to not listen to everybody anymore and, and I started to do what I thought was right. And then I I decided to do what, what what is in my best interest and and to try out to play jazz because it was my love anyway it had been for a while and as soon as i started playing jazz i really fast became thomas known as thomas gunch and and everybody treated me like thomas gunch and i became a, a musician before i was just like a this failure had to be, they wanted me to be a copy of Hans Gansch, which I, I'm, I'm happy I failed, actually. Now, apart from the pressures uh, that you're talking about with your brother and being in the same city and everything, did you yourself feel connected to that life or did you just follow it because you thought it was what you did in order to have a career? Which life, you mean? Uh, like the orchestral path, traditional, you know. No, it was like the, the steps were like printed. They were pre-printed for me. And they, everybody expected me to walk that path that they had thought out for me. And, but several things happened on the way to that path that nobody uh, took into account. Uh, for example, when I first heard uh, Dizzy Gillespie, I saw him on television, that changed my life. And when the first time I heard Bohemian Rhapsody, that changed my life. And I, there, there were so many more things that I I was interested in and but I always put that aside because this this master plan of of me having to be the next orchestra trumpet player uh had been thought out so well by so many other people uh, so I didn't even consider 
trying to to go for it first i had to do what everybody thought i had to do and and then i failed and everybody was really surprised <laughs> uh, that i failed and disappointed and and sad and my brother I, I had one audition where i was like i became i made the last place <laughs> i sucked really bad and my brother after that for like two weeks he ran around with a really white face <laughs> and he was he was crushed he thought he always talked to himself saying oh, it's not working he's not going to make it so everybody was really down for me but that kind of freed me to to do something else uh because the, <laughs> the problem was in in the classical scene everybody talks about the mistakes and nobody talks about the achievements you know you if if I played well, which I also did uh, later on, I I, uh, I played really well sometimes. But you play a great symphony and you, you put a lot of work and effort into it, and then it's over. And like people in the audience, they wake up and they give a little clap. And that's so not what I was looking for. That I'm in retrospect, I'm I'm really happy how things uh, played out. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know what you're talking about, and obviously your pressures were coming from a much deeper place with all the history with your brother. But I, I find it interesting that a lot of uh, young professionals, or even before they're professionals, you know, young kids entering conservatory, willingly put themselves on that uh, stress. You know that they feel they need to be the next something, and they don't even acknowledge who they are in putting themselves in that box i don't know if you can't put yourself into that box i think for me it was laid out so uh, i came i i come out of this family where like the, our father's mantra was like if you if you're not perfect you better don't even try and this haunts me my whole life because it's it's it destroys all the joy you know <laughs> and I, I had to learn to accept my failure i had to learn to to see me like the the audience sees me for example i when when i was young and people came to me after show and said you really played great i said ah, no 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 I, I wasn't in tune here and i i, I cracked up a note here and i uh, this wasn't great and that wasn't great and this attitude runs within the classical music community, at least here at that time. It was like that. Also, my brother, when I, when I talk to him, I, I tell him, man, these recordings of you are great. He says, well, I wasn't in tune here. I was. It, it's the same thing. You, you put yourself down all the time, and that's just no fun. So uh, at one moment, I decided to, to step back and watch it from the outside. And I thought to myself, if so many people show up to every performance and they really love it, I can't suck that bad. It's just not possible. If they like it, something has to be all right with it. And I started to just accept my, my, my mistakes and everything. It's, it's part of me. When I, when I play badly, I play badly. It's, it's okay. It's just nobody dies because of that. I'm fine. Uh, but it's, it's, the world doesn't explode because I had a bad day. It's just, it's just part of the game. And if you want to be perfect, you shouldn't 
make music anyway because it's it's the human element is so important my favorite recordings of of musicians for example jazz trumpet players my favorite players are like lee morgan or freddie hubbard or miles davis when they play and they go for something and they crack up a note and they take the mistake and create something new out of it and this energy is Classical music is lacking this energy a lot of the time because there's no improvisation and you only, you, you, you only practice all your life to become somebody who sits in an orchestra and, and uh, makes no mistakes. And that's the goal, to make no mistakes. So that's, on one hand, it's very stressful. On the other hand, it's not really fun to me. But it also, it's, it's the promotion of a type of... Um you know, you're, you're promoting a bass element that's not really relevant to the composers that made the music anyway. I don't think that Strauss or Mahler or Beethoven were really thinking about technical proficiency when they were writing what they were writing. I mean, at the end of the day, any composition in any genre is about expression and energy. And very rarely does perfection factor into energy uh, transfer, if you would, you know, between a performer and an audience member. Yeah, but if you're the composer, you are imagining the whole building, and if you're an orchestra player, you are just one. You have your few bricks which you try try to put into it so that the building is standing in the end. So uh, both sides, uh, I understand, but it's simply it's it's no fun to to be prepared all the time on the highest level to make no mistake, and then you have. Sometimes you have nothing to do and you have to count empty bars for like 10 minutes and then play ba, 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 ba. and you shouldn't fuck those few notes up because otherwise <laughs> you will lose your job. So that's not a, a very nice situation like for me to imagine. I prefer to go on the stage and play like 10,000 notes in a show and uh, if I fuck up 100, it's fine because <laughs> it's still a very small percentage and I can work my way out of it. I can, but, but the stress of having to work on the, on the point is, is uh, too much for me. Well, and uh, here's where I, people like you I find fascinating. Um, I find that people that work for in the type of music that you're very connected to the audience, which is a lot what you do. Um, I think that there's a better pulse that you guys have about, you know, how effective you are being and where you're wasting your energies or not. Can you talk a little bit about like what that feels like? Like the, what do you gain when you're performing what you love? I mean, I think that that's a feeling that some people don't know about, sadly. Mm. First of all, I didn't know what I was getting into. So everything is like you, you learning by doing and, and it's, it's, it's developing and it's still like that. So, for example, Nautilbrass, we never thought that it would be what it became in the beginning. And I always grew with time and very slowly. It was always a, a, a slow curve that was going slowly up. Uh, for example, we had because <laughs> you cannot prepare for the kind of work we do. Uh, we, you have to experience it to, to grow into those uh, 
shoes. For example, we had we played a premiere of a show uh, 17 years ago in a hall that was made for like 700 seats. And at the time, it seemed like the perfect hall. It was just perfect. And a few years later, after playing many, many shows and growing into bigger halls, we came back to right to that space and we played the same hall and it was just too small because we were used to play something else. And so we grew out of the little halls, we grew into big halls and then we, I had to learn how to treat every hall differently. <laughs> so, because when you play big halls, you want to sound like in the big hall everywhere. So there are so many things uh, uh, that you learn through experiencing uh it is always an adventure with every band with every music with all the musicians uh i work together the the most important thing is uh open your ears and make music you know if don't don't play meaningless notes that's the most important thing and once when you do that you will make connections with other players and you will Go on an adventure. And if you enjoy yourself on stage with the other musicians, this, uh, this burns through to the, to the audience. And in the end, everybody is, is like in a circle of, of people who have that experience together. And the real magic is that as when you make music, you can really touch people in their hearts very directly and i can also touch somebody who is like politically on the on the other side of the spectrum you know somebody i, I would shout at on facebook or or would somebody would <laughs> would give me a lot of shit like on social media i i know i i never would be able to talk him out of his ideas but i know when i am in a room playing and this person is listening i can maybe reach into the heart of this person and light up a little tiny thing in there that stays in there and makes him think or her think you know and that's the, the that's the, the the whole journey what's the journey is about uh, of, of making music uh whatever your question was this was my answer to it <laughs> well i i think that what you just said is also like the tremendous responsibility that you have to feel in some ways as an artist but you don't have to take it uh like you're a saint i think that that's something interesting about the work that you do with with your groups is that it's not condescending to the audience because you guys are sharing exactly what you want to share and yet it's extremely generous because evidently you're leaving what you want to leave on you know, you're putting the cards on the table, so to speak. And I love that about that, uh, about the work you guys do. Um, so let's talk, why don't we, you know, I want to talk a little bit about that too, because um, I think it's, you guys are obviously tremendously popular, but I think that there's not enough appreciation for the fact that what you guys are doing is probably one of the first uh, truly innovative chamber music groups in the brass world. I mean, because most of the time what we see, no matter how good they are, is brass groups that do arrangements of larger pieces, you know, arrangements of Bach, arrangements of Beethoven, et cetera, et cetera. You guys are bringing in a completely new and unique repertoire and also uh, one that you would never have thought of for, you know, a brass ensemble. So, I mean, obviously, I think everyone knows a little bit the history of, or not everyone, but people can look up a little bit the history of 
and also Braz. And but I, I'm more curious how you bring these shows together and the selection of of what you guys choose to do and the projects you choose to take on, because I'm sure they're very time consuming based on, you know, you're always off book. It's coordinated. There's choreogra choreography. I know that you guys have worked with theater directors, et cetera. I'm just curious about that whole process because I find it tremendously innovative. It is always different. So uh, first of all, the group started out like 28 years ago now. So I was 16 and, and we were playing in a pub in the Nozzle pub, we were playing like on the fridge, on top of the fridge. There was a giant fridge and we would stand on the fridge and play. And uh, the better we would uh, entertain the audience, the more drinks would be delivered upstairs. So this business model stayed exactly the same till today, uh, except the, the, the fridge changed into stage and, and other things came into play. Um, but for the first couple of years, we just learned to entertain people in pubs. So, and we played in pubs and then we played on weddings and we played on like uh, farmers markets and whatever, on funerals. And we, also, we played in jail. However, we always had to fight for the audience to stay with us. And it was never enough for us to just do the gig, get paid and drive home we always wanted to have people amazed that was that was our thing we were like young and, and we really wanted to make an impact so at the end of every gig we would have like uh people uh cheering for us being completely out of their minds mostly very drunk but it was a, a fantastic thing to do and we took this experience from the first few years like after five years we we did the first the first show on a stage. So we already had played five years in all kinds of situations. So we went on stage, we prepared four shows for some festival where we had to play contemporary music in the first part. And so we decided to play after this contemporary stuff in the first part, we did an intermission and then we just called, we, we told the people to call songs. So, <laughs> In the first show, this was going really well. It was really fantastic. And we thought we were the kings of the world. And like in the second show, <laughs> nothing worked. So, uh, failure is a good friend, you know. You, you, you don't learn anything if you don't fail. So out of these first few gigs, we then developed a stage show where everybody put everything in he knew at the same time seven people uh, seven people made uh, seven jokes uh, at the same time all the time and we just played uh, popular songs and songs we like and then uh, an actor and director saw us and he came to us his name was Bernd Jeschek he, he came to us and he said I, I really like what you do and I want to work with you and he prepared a show with us together called Smoke. That was the first real show we did. And uh, he kind of just, but what was very important for us was, was the, the pair of eyes from the outside. So somebody watched it all and said, you do less, you, you be still, that's good, that's not. And, and he brought, it just, he just put things in order. He didn't do too much, but he had, he had some great ideas as well, like theatrical ideas. Like in between tunes, one would stand up and say 
something completely meaning, meaningless, but with a great gesture. Uh, and so like we, we, we learned to, to saw together musical pieces into a strange uh, theatrical and funny show. And we kept working with him for, we did five shows together. And all the, the shows keep, kept changing. And then we did like real theatrical stuff with a lot of lyrics and dancing and everything. It got bigger. And, and then we worked with other directors. But always the music was the first thing. So we bring music ourselves. So most of it is, is written and arranged by Leonard Paul. He's a trombone player, the guy who plays all the instruments at the same time. Then uh, myself and Gerhard Füssel is also a trombone player. We do most of the writing. And uh, usually we just bring music that we like. Everybody in the band brings something else. You know, Leonard comes, he knows about jazz very well. He's a very distinguished writer, but he comes, his, his real love lies with uh, old music, like Baroque music, stuff like that. So he comes from that uh, direction. And plus he's a, a complete strange fantastic stage personality, which you cannot find anywhere else. Uh, Gerhard, the other writer, has a great uh, affection for Russian composers like, like uh, uh, Shostakovich is his favorite. And he, he always brings stuff like that. And now we're, we're doing a new show. He, he brought, uh, there's a, a great, a great uh, a piece for two pianos from Lutoslavsky. Uh, uh, the Paganini variations, but in a in a contemporary arrangement by Lutoslavsky and Gerhard arranged it for us. It's really heavy, but it's 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 amazing. And yeah, and I was always into Bohemian brass music and into jazz and and everybody else, also the guys who are not writing, they come from musical directions, and we always brought everything into the pool. We had never we never experienced music as something with borders you know which is also interesting because over the course of the years uh i've i've seen not so brass cds and dvds in like shopping malls in all the sections i've seen not so brass cds in the classical in the folk music in the <laughs> in the jazz section in the uh, comedy section so it's always like wandering around because uh, nobody knows where to put it and Maybe that is something special about this, that we never cared about borders. Because what the business loves so much is like to have everything labeled. And we were not, they couldn't label us clearly. And this, on the one hand, gave us a lot of time before we even got recognized. Uh, and then uh, gave us a lot of freedom because we had already developed our fan base and our thing uh, when, when the news came out that we are existing. So... Uh, yeah. 28 years together is an incredible long time. And also, so I, I have a couple of things I want to ask you about. First of all, uh, I'll, I'll ask the questions and then I'll let you talk. I want to hear like the sacrifices it takes. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but to stay in a group for 28 years. I mean, that that's a commitment, at least on on all the members that you have to at some point decide to be in it. I'm sure other opportunities come that could threaten it and you decide to stay together. That's one thing I want to hear about. But then the other, uh, if you could go into your own, uh, you know, feelings about uh, 
you know the divisions of genre that like you well put are are usually created by entertainment uh, management and less so by the way people consume art i don't know if you can talk a little about those two things okay uh first thing and i'm sure i will forget about the second uh, question i will remind you <laughs> uh first thing Nautil brass is like it's like a marriage it's it's first of all it always was great fun it was great fun in the beginning we had a lot of great fun and we were good friends and we did not make any serious money for like first 10 years and after that it happened that we decided okay this is going to be our main job now so everything always went slowly that's very important you cannot put together like an American Idol thing and, and put together a group like this. It has to grow. Think certain things happen and that's why we made it that way. Then we are always, uh, we were always very interested in doing it. So it was our baby. It was not something we did just for the money. But of course it it transformed into something we only did for the money for, for sometimes. And maybe, maybe this whole Corona thing is the chance for us to stay together till we die. Cause the, the plan was always, we will stay together till we die. And, uh, but somewhere along the, the, the journey, the, the, the fun, declined and you know we we toured so much we were almost all the time on like airports and always and everybody's got children and it's an incredibly hard life to 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 live so actually this whole corona crisis hit me at exact the right uh point of my life so it saved me because i i had the feeling for me personally maybe we we should just do another two years and then let it be. And now I think we have the great chance of, we had already the great chance to rethink everything because uh, we are hit the hardest from this crisis because we played 90% of our gigs uh, in foreign countries, which was canceled. And we play only big venues, which was, is also a problem. So this group is like lying on its back at the moment and just we just played two shows we come it's an opportunity here uh we we played one pretty big show but it was uh open air and it was possible but it won't be possible for the next few months again so until things go back to normal uh there will be at least another year here i'm i'm pretty sure and I see this as a great opportunity for the band to, to think about what is important. Because uh, I had the strong feeling that we have done everything uh, so far. So whenever we are doing a new show in, in the last years, I had the feeling that grew stronger and stronger that we have done that before, you know. There are only so many things you can do with seven brass players who sing badly, but it's not easy to keep it fresh over such a long period of time. 
And now I see this fantastic opportunity of saying, you know what? And we did that. We sat together and we said, we want to stay together. We want to have fun again. And we want to do things we enjoy. And this was like a great reset. And I can't wait to take this reset and uh, bring it to the full. Let the group shine uh, in full again. Uh, and, but very important, play less. We should stop doing this uh, terrible lifestyle of, of just playing, 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 playing. One, one day here on the map and the next day is here on the map and the next day is here on the map and the next day is over there and then back to here. And then after this gig here, you have to go on a, on a bus and drive like five hours to here to the airport to, be, uh, to take the flight at 6 a.m. to be over here. So this life is terrible and it makes you sick and it's, it, takes all the, it sucks out all the fun elements. And it, in the end, it becomes just a money job. And this is, uh, now I say, thank you, coronavirus. <laughs> you just got me out of this phase where I was really uh, desperate to to let it be, and now I, I I can look forward to the later career of Dotsu Brass. Because after 28 years, come on, I mean, how many years do we have to go till the first teeth drop out? We don't know, but there will be teeth falling out. I'm pretty sure. Well, let's. I I, I want to go into this a little bit, actually. You know, I, I've doing these conversations. It has been very interesting. That part of why I launched the doing this. I had thought about doing this um, in person. You know, before coronavirus hit, so I was traveling a lot to Europe. Uh, I studied with Hokan Hardenberger, so I, I spent some time in in Europe. And I would have been at your place, like in March, before we had to fly out to to California. They canceled everything. Yeah, so I was going to start this anyway, but you know, coronavirus, I said, well, everyone's at home, might as well. And part of what I wanted to know in this moment was how creative artists, and so the people that aren't just going gig to gig, but that, you know, sit and think about these things a little more, uh, saw this period. And it's been interesting that a lot of them, including yourself, see it as an opportunity. I mean, I, you've talked about it in the context of your own group, but What, what do you think that this space, which is so rare because we're in a world that moves so quickly in the music industry today, do you th what do you think this space can afford a person? You know, like what have you been thinking about that reached the decision that you just told me about? Was it just having time to think about it, having time to just be alone with your instrument again? What, what has this period been like for you? As I said before, this period was like kind of a rescue for me because I was doing way too much. I'm I'm one of these uh, rare, happy, lucky guys who made enough money and I have a group that's going well and then and I, I, I made so much money I could afford to play jazz. So, <laughs> no. um, but there was never the possibility of stopping. That was not there before. I would never have canceled a show, even if I would have like be sick, feel sick or have fever. I played shows in every uh, condition imaginable. I broke down on stage. I had like, I had to get infusions and intermission. I played with fever and with, with everything. And it's, it's like uh, you kill yourself slowly if you do that. For me, it was like 
the halt I, I, I never would have taken on my own. I was always working. I was like a donkey. When you put a carrot in front of a donkey, that's what I, I, the carrot was like the timeout. I will take a timeout like two years from now, three years from now. I will take a timeout. I will not play for like half a year and I will spend time with my kids. And I, I always chased this carrot and I was living in that extreme pressure of being on top everywhere at the same time. I, uh, in my case, it's that I also played many, many different uh, other things. And I always want to perform on the highest level, of course, because my dad always said, you better be perfect. So that always works in there. So actually, I was, I was sick from my job. I was sick from flying around. I was, I was always having problems with my lungs. I, I thought I had COVID-19 like... Uh, last year because I was really down and, and I couldn't breathe. And, but it happened. I didn't have it. It was just I was sick from flying. And as soon as this stop happened, my first reaction was like, no, no, I have to go on. I have to go on. I have to play online concert tomorrow. And the day tomorrow. Um, because I still, you, you still think like the, the, the guy who, who needs the, the money from the job to pay the rent, but you are, I wasn't anymore because Actually, I could have just relaxed at least for un, until summer, but then other things happened that made me work again and think again. But that's a different story. Um, but then I I lean into it and I experienced maybe the greatest time in the last twenty five years because now I know the names of my kids. Who had thought? We spent so much time together and it was just so amazing. You know, every, everything happens for a reason and every, everything you can, life is happening. You know, you are, you are here and you want to go there and, and you start going and you think you're going in that direction, but in real time you go like that. And at some point you're here and you're not interested in going here anymore because here it's fine. So that's what happened. And, and I was really, really thankful. And I, f I felt relieved from that pressure of having to do this all the time. And then I could start to rethink how, how I can make a living uh, within this corona thing. And because uh, <laughs> as soon, I was really cool for like two months. I had the greatest time of my life. And then the Austrian, uh, the, the, the lady who was in charge of cultural politics in Austria, she uh, gave her first press conference. And when I, <laughs> when I listened to what she said, the, the alarm bells were going off in my head uh, because I knew then that there was no plan. There was no, nobody knows how to handle this and how to, how to get back on track. There's no plan for it. And it's going to be very interesting how this carries on because uh, until there is a vaccination, it's going to be dark times for, uh, in, as a, for, for indoor gigs and especially in winter. So now we play a little, uh, it's going to, I'm sure it's going to close down again, at least November, December. That's, it's going to be hard to play again. And however, I have the great opportunity now to, to, to do little things, uh, small groups like duos, trios. And, and I did my 
I don't know if you know my, my home, Ganj at Home. I did like a concert series from my house. I started in my house and then I started doing it live like, uh, and played at different locations of friends. I just, uh, I'm just about to do the, the, the 10th edition. Uh, and that, that's been working out great. And I, I was able to, to like pay a lot of people. So, and the only, the only thing I did uh, was I played concerts on the internet and I told people that this is not for free and they should, they should participate. They should pay. And some of them did, some don't, but I can't change that. I think it's the, the only way to connect it was it was really important for me to don't have a paywall just put it out there and tell people and remind them that it's that's it's it's work we're doing and it's not for free and if they can afford it they should pay something and if they can't afford it they should just take something else from it talk about it show it to your friends do whatever you want but if you can give something give and if you can't if you if you can give something but you decide to not give anything you're an asshole that's actually the, the, the business model. Uh, <laughs> and it, it, it kind of worked uh, for the first uh, couple of episodes and I, I was able to make some money and, and pay some serious uh, money to uh, serious musicians and that made me pretty proud. So I'm trying to do uh, uh, like every... Six weeks or six to six weeks to two months. I'm trying to do one of these shows now and try to get myself over the time. But we'll see uh, what happens. I think it's great to hear it from people like you. And I, I, it's also been a recurring theme. I mean, most of my conversation with Mark was about this. That um, it's important for people to say what you just said, which is it's not. You shouldn't be waiting for this thing to end quickly. I mean, it, it's very, it's going to be terrible. And partially because of what you said, we're experiencing the same thing here in Los Angeles with our, uh, you know, mayor and also with the governor that uh, everything's being handled by politicians and there's not a lot of creative solutions that I see will come because they're not thinking creatively. They're just thinking about trying to solve this and they, they know they can't and they don't know how to do anything. And uh, we're sadly the victims of that. But like you said, we have to find other avenues to explore because it's going to be maybe a year in some places. I, I think in LA, it might be even two or a year and a half because of the way things are going. There's the small difference between the United States and Austria. Austria depicts itself as a as the fortress of culture and music. And now in the eye of the hurricane of this crisis, they don't do anything about it. The only uh, cultural events that matter are the ones that are seen by the world. It's like the, the New Year's concert will happen and the Salzburg Festival was happening. It, it's also it, big money for, for, for big events, but all the little clubs are closing. I think I was never, by the way, I was never happier to live here uh, and not in the States than now because we have a really, really good uh, health system here and healthcare for everybody is actually a good thing. And, <laughs> and it's, it's really terrible to, to, to think about 
my my friends living over there and you know also before the crisis it is is it was hard to so many great musicians i mean renowned musicians file uh um like uh, crowdfunding campaigns to 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 pay for their medical treatment and it was before corona so i don't want to live there this is terrible <laughs> a society that, that that treats their 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 uh, people like that it's terrible but i what do i know i'm not american and uh i feel that very strongly now i feel very connected to your culture uh i've always admired american culture and so much of what I admire in on American culture has been made by on the one hand it's Afro-Americans who made it, on the other hand it's like European immigrants who made it. Uh like the people we drove out, but there's so much I admire about it. And then when I when I look at the country, how it works and how how you put like like nipples are bad and guns are great. These are things I, I never understood. So, yeah, I, I'm actually, you know, I'm from Colombia in South America. So I'm also, but I feel the same uh, with what you're talking about. I mean, I have tremendous admiration artistically for this country. I think it's overlooked actually by the country itself and even by the world. I mean, people sometimes forget that at the end of the day, Miles Davis was American because we just think of Miles Davis, right? And uh, and everything that led to the development of that music could only come from where it came from. I mean, it's it's heaviness and it's grime and everything. If you visit Louisiana or any of these places, New York, it's like it's obvious, right? Um, and like you said, all the Jewish immigrants that came here, and uh, you know, it's it's amazing. But it's so strange that the things that make this place so amazing, which is like the amount of freedom you have, the amount of ability to do whatever you want. It's all great, but too much has been gambled on the back of that system. And I, I, I think at least in the arts, that's all coming to light now because everyone was happy in the Los Angeles Philharmonic saying, we fundraise every year. Everyone was happy until the stock market crashed and we don't know how the fundraising is going to look. And the Metropolitan Opera is on furlough and people are moving you know, away from the city. It's it's absurd because in a way it's a system we all knew was a problem crumbling in a week. You know, it's like it can't sustain itself. We have great funding for like the, the, the big houses, the official jobs, like the Vienna State Opera, for example. Now is there is no talk about closing anything because this is like it, it will always live. It's the we pay it with our tax money. It's, it's the flagship of, of uh, the opera scene. And for example, they now reopen for the new season. They are allowed to fill the 2,400 seat hall or was it is up to like 1,000, I think, which is pretty much okay. But <laughs> uh, even if everything, if even if it was full, it, it wouldn't, uh, wash in the money they, they use anyway but now uh, only for the month of September they spent like almost $400,000 for testing the staff uh, for Corona and they have to do that all the time so you, 
if you if you start uh, uh, calculating, this will not last for very long. I mean, we will make it last for long, but if this crisis, because now people, politicians are talking about releasing the first vaccination, maybe in January, uh, and but at least till, till the next summer. But if not, we will see a lot of crashing. Now, uh, at the moment, the, the real poor people for me are like the, the uh, people who own nightclubs or discotheques, stuff like that, because they kept telling them here, for like four months, it's gonna be it's gonna be better in August. It's gonna be better in August. And like a week before August, they said no, sorry. And all those people, they they still paid their rents. They still paid their stuff. And now they face extinction. And this is it's going to go quickly uh, uh, down now. I think every individual has an opportunity to help itself somehow but it always gets complicated when more people are involved so this is also the thing with in, in my case uh i've got like four kids and i've got a a, a certain life I, I achieved and now I'm, I'm trying to hold as much of it as i can so this is why i'm getting uh trying to make money as well uh but you have to rethink everything. But I'm 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 pretty I'm pretty I'm pretty confident that it will work. But I, I know a lot of people working behind the scenes. You know, if you're a sound technician or a light technician or uh you can't do a a lot of creative things to, to wash in some money. So and I know of a lot of musicians uh like real jazz musicians. If you're a real jazz musician, you're always fighting for the next gig anyway. So now you're like clusterfucked. Uh, this is terrible. Uh, and with, on the other hand, the clubs closing, terrible. But as I said before, I think it's a very bad situation for big things and it's a, maybe an opportunity for small things. Um, I played in a club uh, in July, a small jazz club. It was opened within the borders of the law at the time here. And it was packed <laughs> because they had the rule like four, four seats per table. And in between all the tables, like there had to be a, a three feet uh, a space or something. And they made it and it was within the law, but it was packed. It was unbelievable. And I played in there. And of course, the next two days, you start thinking, my God, if one, if one person was infected, everybody's infected. So you always have to keep way into these things. How, how, how can I manage it? I, I have to make money. I have to feed the kids. On the other hand, I, I do risky stuff. I have to get tested. I, by the way, I got tested. I'm completely fine. At least five days ago, I was. Who knows? It's yeah. a killer virus. It will kill us all. <laughs> And if it doesn't kill us, uh, something else will. But however, that's life. Uh, <laughs> but a very, very interesting point in the whole corona crisis is that somehow people uh, discovered that life is ending at one point. <laughs> I think that fact was completely gone. Like, like I was touring all the time and there was no imagination for the other life. Uh, and so people are always there. They're jogging and working out. and. Uh, uh, 
trying to be in shape and good looking and get the face lifted and whatever. And they always think they, they have, they, there's this thing where they try to, to, to trick death or something. I don't know. And in the end, uh, they die, but nobody talks about dying. That's a, a very strange thing. So, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no. That I mean, I, I thought from the beginning that was a very interesting philosophical conundrum about this virus, that it's, it made everyone face their own mortality, even people that are not, you know, statistically that much at risk. I mean, I, 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 I see it here and I see it everywhere. I mean, it's, it's, but it's interesting because, like you said, it's no different than your day-to-day -day life. You're just having to face it for the first time. By, by not choice, you know, and it's, it's, it's interesting what priorities people are finding in that time. And, uh, you know, I, in, in that sense with the priorities, I, I think that governments, both culturally but also in business, are perhaps promoting the things that are not so important to people. You know, I, I, I do think, for example, in much of Western Europe, especially the German-speaking countries in Scandinavia, things like the opera are very important to you guys culturally. Um, however, I think that the vast majority of people, like you said, it doesn't surprise me that if they open a club, people go to it because that's a much more relevant thing in some ways for people's life and sanity. And I see it here in, in the United States. I mean, I, I wonder if we make a case in, to government to save the Los Angeles Philharmonic. I mean, they're not in trouble, but let's say that they were. Uh, wouldn't it be money better spent to send that to the Blue Note and to, you know, the places that are significantly more important to the culture of this country? And I, I think that these places get overlooked and they get treated like they're just a small business that failed. And it's, it's a real shame. I mean, I don't know. It is, it is strange. I don't know. I don't know either. It's like for some people, you know, artists they they don't have a uh, they don't have a great fan base because they always talk, they always speak their minds, so nobody likes them anyway. And uh, we have a, we have a great f system of funding, but on the other hand, there there are many artists who are just demanding the funds here. There's uh, less of a business side to it. So uh, success is, is, is a different thing here because things get funded anyway. So you have, it's, it's a more, not everybody's after the money. Not everybody's speaking after the money. Everybody's going for the money, of course, but, but uh, it's a different It's a completely different game. I really admire uh, Winton. Of, of course, I admire him artistically, but also for what he's been doing. How he's... Did you see him the other night on, on Bill Maher? Yeah, and I've seen... I've been following a lot of what he's been putting up, and it's... You know, what, what I find very interesting... You just said something, that you said that artists speak their mind and people don't like them. I... I think it's more rare here in America because like you said, everyone's after private funding and what you say is so important. And it's great when you find somebody like Winton who has kind of throughout his whole career traversed the maybe not popular opinion in sometimes, but especially now when he's like in control 
of a lot of things. This dude is saying a lot of things that throughout this whole thing, he said a lot of things that are not what people would have expected of him on subjects of race, on subjects of power, on subjects of politics. And it's truly refreshing in America because that's the type of shit that gets you fired like Mark. It's the truth, man. He is the truth. The one thing he said on Bill Maher, like, oh, no, no, don't look, don't look on the, on the, uh, on the, I don't know how he said it exactly, but for me, I, re, I recall it like, don't look at the fist fight. Look at who has the, the, the hands in the money counter, you know? <laughs> and that's so true. It is so true. What is it about who, who comes out on top and who makes profit with, with what? Ah, yeah. However, Winton, great, 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 great idol. Do do you find that, and I I don't know anything about it, but you are also very um, not outspoken, but you're very truthful to who you are in everything I've ever seen of you and the way you talk and the way you've done your career. Um, how difficult is that, or how much courage does that take to traverse? in your musical scene because you know that's also been a lot of the people i've had on mark being perhaps the best example of this uh that these are people that seem dangerous to institutions but are people with tremendous integrity i mean the way that mark quit the metropolitan opera and for the reasons he did what got him in trouble recently for i think ridiculous reasons and you mean the way he quit julia <laughs> yeah the way he quote unquote quit you know I, I and i know a lot of people like this in america that the institutions kind of take out but they're the type of people the institutions should be sheltering because they're the ones promoting independent thought yeah but this is the the, the problem of politics there is no there's no way around it though i can't be true to myself because i always stayed out of it and i i do it f i do what i do for myself so i i I'm not really, I mean, I'm, I, I have a small teaching job at like a, the, the jam lab. That's like a university and you also can do online classes, whatever. And you can make your bachelor. And, but I'm, I'm not, I don't have to, I don't have to present something else that I am for them. I'm, uh, so, and everything else I do is like freelance. It's my own stuff. I make up my work so I don't need to uh, put so much uh, attention into how I speak, how I appear to you, how I, also how I behave in Corona, you know, I, uh, uh, I don't have to be, but now in the Corona crisis, like the bureaucrats take over. So whenever you run an official place, like I told you uh, before about the state opera, they, they have to spend so much money for constant testing all the time. I can decide for myself when I feel like that, that could have been, if somebody was there and he had it, maybe I have it. Then I say, okay, I make a test. But if I think that was safe, I don't do it. So I am kind of my own boss. And that's, that's the secret to be truthful. Because if I had to, to, to slime my way up into some, into some golden tower, <laughs> I don't know how I, how I would behave. Uh, but I always prefer to be my own boss than... It's the same thing. I didn't fit fit into orchestras anyway, you know. Even if I I, I tried to look funny, I tried to have green hair and a and a silly band trumpet. So uh, I always tried to to be my own my own thing. I find my 
write my own voice. That's what what I what what was important to make me Thomas and not the brother of Hans. That's the thing. Well, and I have been thinking that uh, coronavirus, the one other huge opportunity that it's allowed um, independent voices in some way, even though there's a lot of restriction because we can't do what we want to do. We can't pull the concerts we want to pull. It has also collapsed a lot of the uh, institutional narrative in some way that uh, this this idea that if I go to study with the right teacher, they'll put me on the right list to sub with this orchestra, which will put me on the path or in, in the jazz world here in America, you see it the same way. It's if I if I go to this school and I study with that professor and then I do this competition, then I will end up in this list and it all of a sudden it kaputs, right? And all of a sudden also, we don't know if they come back next year. And so now what? Like, are you waking up and doing the work because it's something that's meaningful to you? Are you, what do you want to share? What do you want to do? Because you have nobody's ass to kiss right now that'll help. Yeah, that's what I said before. Like, it's, 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 it's a really crap for the big ones, but it's, it's a great opportunity for the small things. So just recently, like Columbia artists collapsed. So that's very funny. Actually, that's, that's exactly the same picture. So the big, the, the big sharks in the tank, they get eaten. Uh, and the little ones, it's now, now it's piranha time. Let, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how that turns out. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Because especially classical music, it's like such an inbred thing, you know. Like you said, I go to that teacher, I get this job. But it, it used to be the same over here. I had to study with the teacher I studied because he was the key to get into this orchestra, which I fortunately didn't make. Uh, like 30 years later, I, I talked to, uh, you know, uh, is, the name Carol Dawn Reinhardt is familiar to you? Yes, yes, of course. Carol was the third uh, trumpet professor in Vienna, but I never considered going to her because she was not uh, connected with any orchestra. And like 30 years later or, or 25 years later, I get to know her and I think, oh my God, I should have been her student. She's so nice and she's such a, a great person and a killer player and I would have had such a great time everything would have been better but i was too young and too stupid and didn't even consider it uh, yeah things change yeah uh, i've been i've been blamed for the opposite thing for example here in la that i've uh, pursued people around the globe and of course la has amazing trumpet players and i study with some of them here but people tell me oh why are you wasting your money you should go play for you know insert name and i'm like yeah but that person charges 250 dollars for something I'm not interested. I mean, there's, I've seen this person's masterclass. There's nothing of interest to me. I mean, to somebody else, maybe that's absolutely great, but I'd rather uh, be with this interesting musician like Dan Rosenboom, uh, who I don't know if you know, but you know, I'd rather spend an hour with Dan. We had a room party together in, at the first ITG conference I went to <laughs> in Glassboro, I think. I think, I think Dan was there. It was a, a Sultan Kish was there. I was there with Sultan Kish, and there was some doobie involved. I'm pretty sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there was something. <laughs> it, turned, it turned out as a as a uh, beatboxing techno party. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's perfect. I couldn't imagine it any other way. <laughs> but I let I want to go back to the other part 
the other thing I wanted to talk to you about that a while back was um, I love this. I love artists that talk about the blending of what is called genre and how it doesn't really exist. Really, it's a it's a ridiculous thing we've created. Uh, how did that come to you? Was this the type of music you were listening when you were young? The type of music you were playing? Like, how how did you come to that? Because I'm curious about that. Uh, I, I always just had a great fascination for things uh, that I heard or saw and I tried to imitate them. That's all. End of story. <laughs> it, no, no matter what, I heard it, I, I, it, it reached me, it touched me, it made something, and I, I thought, I want to do that. I want to do that too. As I also do that. I, I have that musical ear and I can pretty good reproduce what I hear. And so I keep learning, like language, you know, I, uh, uh, I hear something and I try to, in every country we go, I try to, to do a little announcement then in the, in, in the language, if I can. So, and the musical ear helps uh, the same way it helps me, like remembering melodies or, or uh, so I have, because of that, uh, it's kind of easy also to reproduce the phrasing. It's like speaking different dialects. And I, I feel that most, most musicians fail in, in, in getting the dialects right. Because when classical musicians try to swing, it's, it, most of the time it, it, it sounds like corny. And also the other way around. And I think that's on one hand, it's a it's a question of technique. Uh, but on the other hand, it's like speaking the language, listening, really listen, listen and reproduce. Uh, so because that is pretty that comes to be pretty easy. So I never had real problems of, of, of borders because I hear something, I do it. Yeah. I hear that groove. I play like that. I, I, it's, uh, it's just a matter of listening and, and do it. I, I, I get asked that a lot, but I just never thought about any borders. I just, I hear something and I follow it. It's also when, when I go to places, I go to different places and when I stay in an area for a while, I start talking like the people talk there. So it, I don't do it uh, consciously. It's just that it just happens because I'm, all, I'm always, I love listening and, and getting, getting it right, you know. I, I love doing that. So uh, this is why, why it is like that with me. But I cannot give you more tips just how to do it. It's just listen. Yeah, and I'm not even really concerned with tips about it, but I, I'm, I'm curious that it is interesting that that's where it comes from for you, that it's just an innate love for everything that you can hear, it seems like. No, but it's not only hearing, it's also seeing. I mean, when I think of... It's the same when, when I watched as a kid, when I saw Tom and Jerry cartoons on TV, it's the same thing. It just blew my mind and I wanted to do that. Or when I saw, as I mentioned in the beginning, when I saw Dizzy Gillespie on TV, it was not the music at first. It was just his way of walking on stage while the band was playing. I saw this and I thought, yes, 
this is what I want to do. So I just experience things that I like and I want to do the, them or something like that. Or get I, I get a vibe and I want to keep that vibe and wanna I want to use it when when I need it or when when I some there will be the right time to do exactly that that will come and when once the time comes I know it and then I do it and then it is right that's the thing. Well, but then and maybe you won't want to talk about this, but I'm curious from your personality point of view. So you came from like you said your upbringing was fairly set up for you musically speaking right and and what was expected to happen right yeah the, the master plan they had yes yes and so when when did was it always part of your personality to uh not or, or rebel a little bit against that because i i think that to make that crossover that you do and that some some other musicians do like like winton has did in the past and you know marcus stockhouse and stuff like this you have to be fairly independent-minded Right, uh, I think I was not independent-minded for a very long time, but uh, like uh, from the age of twelve, thirteen, something something changed. So I think I, I was a very I was a very good student all the time, a nice little boy. And then at one point I started thinking, and then I wasn't a good student anymore <laughs> and nice anymore all the time. And yeah, it it just but that, that all that, there was a progression that took place about when I was about 12, I think. And then I developed my own thoughts, which was also a long and painful way. But uh, yeah, everything led to where we are now and I'm, I'm pretty happy here. So let's, let's call it. <laughs> I like that. Uh, you started thinking and everything changed. Uh, what, so what kind of things did you gravitate in your... Yes, do not think at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Think, thinking can be very bad for trumpet playing. That's something else I, I experience. <laughs> Sorry. I'm curious because most people that have awakenings, like what you're talking about, then become very you know, self-motivated, curious, uh, you know, polymath almost. So what, what, what were the things that you educated yourself with? I mean, what were the things that you started gravitating to at that, at that age, uh, both in reading, writing, music, everything? You mean in, uh, when when it happened first? Yeah, from from that point on, like what what was it that you were? I just opened. I, I was I was in a in a in a contagious environment. <laughs> I was my upbringing was only bohemian brass music, and on from my father's side and from my mother's side was like popular songs on the radio, uh, so like Pat Boone stuff like that, and those are those were the two things. I experienced uh, besides the, the TV and, and like children's programs. But then I heard uh, like jazz and, and rock music that really completely turned it around in my head. And yeah, that just opened, opened up a gate into, it was just that, oh my God, this, this exists. There is more. And, uh, Almost uh, at the same time or a little later, I saw my first episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Yes. <laughs> and got into like uh, mostly uh, Austrian uh, comedians 
which made me think. I, I still, I'm still, till today, I'm I'm a big a big fan of comedians because the the great ones they 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 make you think and they open up uh, uh, gateways in your head in your mind. Um, yeah, and and now I'm I'm I'm. I know a lot of American comedians. Uh, one of my favorites is Bill Burr, for example. I saw him, I saw him in Vienna last year, and it blew my mind. It was unbelievable. It was really, really good. So, yeah, yeah. Bill Burr is for me. I mean, uh, the subversive personality embodied. I mean, there's a very famous clip that you should look up if you haven't already. Of he goes out in Philadelphia, he's from Boston, and he goes out to do a charity event in Philadelphia and they start booing him. Yeah, yeah he's, he's shitting on for, for like 20 minutes straight or something. <laughs> and then by the end, like half of the people are applauding. <laughs> and it's so fantastic. He's... he's <laughs> there's no, there are no borders to what he does. It's unbelievable. Uh, yeah, I, I've, he made me laugh and cry and and he really he, his last joke was like the top of the evening and it left me speechless it was i felt like after a roller coaster ride it, it was that great it was just unbelievable and it was very very deep all his thoughts are very re relatable and deep of course for a white male <laughs> but no he, no he he's really very angry and sarcastic but hilarious it's it's fantastic and it opens up so many things uh i love it i love this this uh the relief you feel when you when you build the tension with a like a a, a subject matter that's not like uh, not very nice and then you relieve it by ah, making a joke it's fantastic and i always got through life with joking you know i got <laughs> I never looked good, so I have to. I had to be funny to get to the girls anyway. So I can relate to that personality of a comedian as well. Um, yeah, and 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 Bill is definitely one of the greatest for me. And of course, Louis C.K. But uh, I just saw his comeback set. Did you see it? Yeah, I saw. I also one of my favorite jokes relating to Louis C.K. was uh, Dave Chappelle in one of his special saying that his friend Louis C.K. had died in a tragic masturbation accident. Oh, yeah. Dave Chappelle. Is, <laughs> maybe the greatest is Dave Chappelle because he, 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 does not, he, he does not design anything. He's just speaking the truth. And there, when we talk about Chappelle, we talk about music, you know, be authenticity. Be, be yourself and have something to say. Do not Travel any any meaningless words. It's not funny. Other people they tell jokes. It's funny, but it has no layer to it be, below that. And Dave Chappelle, it's just the truth, and that's what it's all about. Also in music, when 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 a great musician touches me, it's because it's honest, one hundred percent. And the same goes for comedy. I think the two art forms are very related, but also the, the thing I get out of it uh, or I got out of it from like a greater sense is, is what you said. It's, uh, it, it's not dumb. Like these are people that are hugely popular and that fill out, you know, Royal Albert Hall, for example, with Bill Burr for his latest special and they're packed and people flock to it and he has a podcast and people listen to it. That's the one I saw. That's amazing. 
but he had a different uh, there were a, a few things were different but most of the material i saw in vienna yeah but you know these people don't underestimate like you said it's it's very smart so yes everyone's there to laugh but you can't underestimate your audience and i think we often do in particularly in the classical music world we we dumb it down to a level that it makes it unintelligible to share anything the thing like i said i think and you said you have to have a responsibility for sharing something and 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 being yourself and it's a tremendous power that you have to have somebody's eyes on you for whatever period of time as a performer with great power comes great responsibility <laughs> that's right kinemans <laughs> uncle said it and then he got killed <laughs> that's the moral of the story <laughs> yeah we, we all die in the end that's it. thank you <laughs> what i love about talking with people like you and people like mark the encouragement to be yourself is not just an encouragement but a responsibility i think a lot of what mark's teaching is and what people misunderstand about it is him pushing people's sensibilities about what they love so that they become strong enough to defend themselves about what they love so that they own it and it's theirs i think mark is the teacher that i really would love to have i'm i'm really really happy that i met him and we became really close friends we don't meet often but i really love the man and uh, I, there is a, there's a deep uh, connection understanding between us and uh but i i'm i'm really sorry i never got to study with him because that would <laughs> maybe he would have but on the other hand if i studied with gold maybe he would have opened up my my personality and and let my playing would have been great and then i would be a vienna philharmonic player and i would maybe <laughs> hang myself in the basement so i don't know <laughs> so yeah. I, I, how, I, just this would be interesting how did you meet mark and and uh, how has that relationship formed like uh Uh <laughs> sorry in the end uh we played in Finland and the Meridian Arts Quintet was there. Ah yes. John Nelson and Brian McWhorter told us about Mark and Brian said you have to meet Mark. You have to meet he's doing a play. You must participate in that play. <laughs> and so we met like two years later at the ITG conference in Banff, Canada. And we, <laughs> and we basically went on stage without any uh, rehearsing, just a small talk we had before. We were entering the stage and I played a Nazi Indian named uh, White Piss Cloud. And I participated in Mark's play, uh, Jews in the Desert, From Jesus to Oppenheim. <laughs> That's how we met, and we have been friends since. And it it was it it doesn't get any stranger than this. But it was really really funny, and I love the man from the bottom of my heart. And uh, yeah, uh, hope to see him again soon. Desert juice from Jesus to Oppenheimer. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> That was he, he said he said the most outrageous things. And people were shocked and like, <laughs> I, I remember people were really shocked and only Wycliffe Gordon and Sean Jones were sitting on the table and they were laughing their asses off. It was fantastic. And Mark is, he's, he's, he's just brilliant. He's like, yeah, I want him to be my dad, but <laughs> maybe, maybe he takes me in. 
Yeah, I remember one time at Chosen Vale when we were one of his last years there. I think this was the straw that broke the camel's back is he put on an opera based on um, themes from Donizetti. So, uh, you know, the, the b- brass band would play a theme from Donizetti and then they would sit on a vamp and Mark would tell, you know, half true, half made up stories of his time at the Metropolitan Opera. And, you know, so you have a group of old lady donors sitting in a church and Mark is talking about how he laced uh, the trombone sections uh, spray with uh, LSD during. <laughs> fantastic. But, you know, yeah, the, that whole crew is fantastic. Told me like he, he, he showed his family, like his aunt or something. I don't, I don't know. I don't remember, but he showed his, his family pink baby monster, like his band, uh, after he had quit the Met. And they watched it and they said afterwards, You quit the Met for this? <laughs> so, yeah. But I, I actually, I, I, that's another thing that I found so great about him, too, because he had an in into all those traditional brass circles that they thought they were going to invite Mark Gould and he would show up with Pink Baby Monster for a class. It's, it's phenomenal. Yeah, he's, he's the guy. He yeah. Is. yeah. Well, you know, Thomas, thank you so much for doing this. I re- and I'm so glad I met you. I'm a huge fan and, you know. Thank you for having me and uh, I'll, be, I'll be still home like half a year from now. So. <laughs> well, and I'll send, you, I'll send you an email with when this is going out. Yeah. It's okay. I wish you a great crisis and I'll see you next year. I wish you a great crisis too, Thomas. <laughs> Bye. Say hello to everybody because I won't be over soon. Bye-bye.